We stand today at the threshold of a great event. Both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe. This universal declaration of human rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Human rights for everyone, for men and women, for the majority and the minority, especially the minority. The big idea of the Universal Declaration is that everyone on the globe has the same political, social, and economic rights. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity. All human beings. All humans are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Without distinction of any kind, such as race, race, color, color, sex, sex, language, language, religion, religion. freedom of expression. No one shall be held. No one shall be held in slavery and servitude. In slavery and servitude. But if history tells us anything, it's that the big idea and the way we live it in real life don't always match up. Crawl out through the fallout, baby, when they drop that bomb. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. Here, an artist's conception of how the feat was accomplished, a three-stage rocket. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite. One of the great scientific feats of the age. People were talking about the Cold War. I know that in Poland they would smuggle records. In the press announcement they call it, this is the Cool War. Can you imagine how much you have to love this music to hide those records in your suitcase? In Poland, under communism, they couldn't get enough of it. Willis Conover with The Voice of America, Jazz Hour. In the Soviet Union, under Stalin, they banned it. The Soviets were very interested in promoting culture. So in the 1950s, the U.S. government decided that it would use art to stop the spread of communism. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings, or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. The American government had a bright idea. I got a red hot tip for you, Joe. They would export jazz in the name of democracy. It would become one of their best propaganda tools in the Cold War. Get that communist, Joe. The problem was, when it came to democracy at home, they didn't have much to brag about. Louis pointed out the uh, absurdity of America making all of its claims about democracy when there was still uh, segregation and Jim Crow laws in the states. All the people of the South are in favor of segregation. And Supreme Court or no Supreme Court, we are going to maintain segregated schools down in Dixie. This is The Journey to Jazz and Human Rights, a documentary look at jazz, blues, and human rights as they are spelled out in the United Nations Declaration. 
I'm Alana Bridgewater. Today, jazz as a political tool around the world, from Russia to the Middle East to Africa. When Louis Armstrong picks up his trumpet and plays, and you can hear some of the early records of Louis when he was with King Oliver and all those, all those guys. Sonny Rollins. I'm not talking about big arrangements. I'm just talking about when they picked up their horn and played. That freedom of expression and, and that they're really uh, communicating with a higher force. So that's what improvisation is. They're really just playing what comes from above. Freedom. That's jazz. Jazz is that. And in Europe, they knew all about it. The funny story was that in the First World War, the people in France and a lot of European countries thought that the national anthem of the United States was the St. Louis Blues. Of course, of course. That's what, <laughs> that's what the United States was. That's what the United States was. Yes, jazz. They, they thought that was a national anthem, which in effect it was, but... <laughs> But uh, they didn't know that. They thought that was really the national anthem. I hate to see that evening sun go down. Yes, I hate to see, see that evening sun go down. Well, he said, yeah, that's, that's America. That's America. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's national anthem. I'm on my last go round. Jazz becomes a global language, even in unlikely places. Europe, the Middle East, South America. Come the Cold War, the world is split between two superpowers, the Soviets and the United States. The Cold War is a game with ridiculously high stakes, and the two sides set off on a competition to win hearts and minds. One of the things I love about the story of the jazz tools, and the easiest way to trace the idea is starting with Louis Armstrong's commercial tour in 1955 of Europe. Penny von Eschen is the author of Satchmo Blows Up the World. Jazz ambassadors play the Cold War. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. On this next number, we're going to take a little trip down to my hometown. And in this tour going through Stockholm, there was a major east-west conference between the U.S. Soviet bloc. And at that time, covering the conference, a journalist said, all right, this conference is a disaster, and I don't understand with all the money the United States is spending to export democracy why it doesn't recognize that it has a secret weapon, a secret weapon that is a blue note in a minor key, and its greatest ambassador is Louis Armstrong. Why don't they export jazz? So in the 1950s, the U.S. government decided that it would use art and culture as a means of protesting and trying to stop the spread of communism. Tammy Kernodal teaches musicology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And so the State Department began to enlist musicians as well as intellectuals to go into different points of the world 
to give concerts and lectures. And, and this was part of this anti-communist Cold War propaganda. I'm the real ambassador. It is evident I was sent by government to take your place. All I do is play the blues and meet the people face to face. I'll explain and make it plain. I represent the human race and don't pretend no more. Okay, the idea was really provoked by Soviet cultural activities. Ingrid Monson, author of Freedom Sounds, a book about civil rights and jazz. So the Soviet Union started sending the Bolshoi Ballet abroad and its musicians and things to showcase its world perspective. You know, and it's the early 1950s. In the United States, everybody's anxious about what's going to be happening to the newly emerging independent post-colonial nations. And the fear is that they're going to side with the Soviet Union over the United States. Eisenhower was very aware of the importance of culture. The Mutual Admiration Society meets on the White House lawn. President Eisenhower enjoys meeting 769 students from 29 foreign countries, and the young teenagers find it mutual. He had been very involved in the Office of War Information and greatly appreciated the importance of a flow of culture and ideas. He also was personally very concerned and kind of appalled that, as he understood it, most Europeans and people in other parts of the world thought of the United States as people without culture, people who only were concerned with automobiles, gadgets, material things. Just press the button for your right, a feature that is new, and extra space all over the place for other riders do. Eisenhower and the Secretary of State had quickly come to understand by this point, as they would have put it, that race relations was the Achilles heel of American foreign policy. So in the mid-50s, as these decisions are being made, the United States is trying to appeal to countries that are involved in independence movements. Yes, dear lady. America had washing machines and refrigerators and institutional racism. Okay, now you're going to want this Jim Crow blues, huh? That brings news and makes a man wear out his shoes when they get in a Jim Crow place. The Soviets knew they had a powerful public relations weapon. All they had to do was point at the American Jim Crow laws and the lack of civic freedom for African Americans. The Americans wanted to push back. This old Jim Crowism did bad luck to me and you. Of course, one of the things they want to showcase is that, you know, really all this talk about racial discrimination in the United States, you know, we need to showcase that. There are successful African-Americans here, and they're doing just fine, and the, they wanted to send integrated groups abroad. This was specifically part of their mandate. You're going to find some Jim Crow every place you go. The Americans and Soviets were playing a new game of one-upmanship. Please get together. Who had the worst human rights record, us or the other guy? There was a real genuine competition between the Soviets and the Americans, and 
A lot of times Americans tend to look back and cast the Soviet Union as only repressive. And it was repressive, it was politically repressive. But it also was educating its population. It was a great advocate of culture. Russia, like Europe or the Soviet Union, was a cultural giant. And the U.S. overtly said, there is no way we can compete with Soviet classical music. We cannot compete with the Bolshoi. We can't compete with their classical dance. But the Russians can't claim jazz. They could not. But they did have their own homegrown jazz. Eddie Rossner was called the White Louis Armstrong. He lived in the Soviet Union. He could play two trumpets at the same time. In the 1930s, he played on cruise ships, he played for the radio, and one time, Joseph Stalin called him on the telephone to congratulate him on his performance. But in 1946, Stalin's mood changed. Eddie Rosner was arrested and sent to the Gulag in Magadan on a 10-year sentence. There he played music for the other prisoners. This is Eddie Rosner's take on Caravan by Juan Tizol and Duke Ellington. Eddie Rosner was released from prison in 1954, the year after Stalin's death. But for the most part, Russian jazz, at least for Russian jazz fans, was a bad imitation of the real thing, which they'd heard on the radio. Good evening, Willis Conover in Washington, D.C with Music USA. The Voice of America presents the big bands. Tonight, Benny Goodman. In 53, the Voice of America started a jazz program with the DJ Willis Conover. And they weren't expecting much of it. Mr. Dizzy Gillespie. Hello, Willis. Needless to say, it is a pleasure to to be broadcasting to my all of my jazz fans over in Europe, Africa. Maybe a little bit of a Mr. Rogers figure. Every program basically, well, he'd start out playing the Billy Strayhorn composition by the Duke Ellington Band, take the A train, and then he would typically interview one or two jazz musicians. Before playing your next selection, Diz, let me ask you a question you probably have never been asked before. What is bebop? Mm. All right, then. <laughs> Very good. To the utter surprise of the United States Information Agency and the Voice of America, they immediately received hundreds and hundreds of letters from all over the world, from Iran, from into the Soviet bloc. 
but they were stunned at the response that they got. Many, many people in the Eastern Bloc both learned jazz and learned English through this venue, through Willis Conover. And by the 60s or even the late 50s, it's estimated that Conover was one of the very, very best known voices throughout the world. Ironically, Americans had never heard of him because there's a law against propagandizing one's own people. So the American people are totally cut off from this. And it's probably yet another reason why jazz to this day is more popular around the world than it is in the United States. So in Eastern Europe, it becomes in a sense, what would be punk. Joel Dinnerstein teaches jazz at Tulane University in New Orleans. He is the author of The Origins of Cool in Post-War America. What would be the rebel music for you to play to basically thumb your nose at the authorities, at your parents, at anybody who was playing along with an oppressive regime? I mean, without jazz, no rock and roll, no punk, no... None of that exists without the first shot, and the first shot is jazz. And the first shot in the Jazz Ambassadors program comes from bebop. Adam Clayton Powell, African-American congressperson from New York, went to the State Department and said, why don't you send Dizzy abroad as a jazz ambassador, suggesting Dizzy Gillespie. So this is how the idea actually goes to the State Department. Dizzy Gillespie was one of the first musicians asked to embark on this. And he said, I want two things. I want this band to be integrated, white and black, and I want it to be co-aid. They picked that up, and then Gillespie and his band go on the first of what will be hundreds and hundreds of tours, first through the Middle East, Yugoslavia, India, South Asia. They go to the Middle East and places, and Quincy Jones is involved in the arrangements, Melba Liston is on trombone. Uh, you know, they in their presentations they do a history of jazz. Uh, many of these programs are concerts are held like at embassies. Dizzy Gillespie has his you know way of, of uh, you know sort of look you know saying I'm not going to play unless you let some normal people into this event. In the case of Gillespie, I'd like to say, you know, they wanted democracy in action, but they got a lot more democracy and a lot more action than the State Department could ever have dreamed of. So these musicians really go off script. In Gillespie's first tour in Karachi, for example, he realized that he was playing for a group that was going to be quite elite because the tickets were very expensive. This is a theme that comes up and again and again with the musicians. So Gillespie said, I'm not going to play unless you open these gates and let what he called the ragamuffin children in because I came here to play for all the people. Dizzy Gillespie is the first but not the last jazz ambassador to be sent to hot spots around the world. So to counter the message that America is a racist country, the obvious choice would be their most famous African-American star. 
Louis Armstrong. At least that was the plan. The United States started talking immediately about sending Armstrong to Moscow the following year, and they were in negotiations. And I do want to back up and say, because so often people say, would Moscow have wanted him? Why would they let him in? Because he undermines their propaganda that the United States is racist. But we have to remember that Moscow and the Soviets deeply, deeply cared about culture, and they weren't defensive about culture, so they were committed to cultural exchange. And in some ways, they were formidable opponents, so that was a risk that they were happy to take. But in the midst of the negotiations, the Little Rock crisis happened. It's early morning here at 1121 Cross Street in Little Rock, and a new school day is dawning. An extreme situation has been created in Little Rock. Little Rock High School had been ordered by the court, court-mandated desegregation. So they were supposed to desegregate. But when the time came, very large, violent mobs of white citizens, a white citizens council, they called themselves, blocked the entrance to the school to keep the black children from going to school. Desegregation is against the Bible. I find my scripture for this in Genesis 9, 27. And Supreme Court or no Supreme Court, we are going to maintain segregated schools down in Dixie. Now, as this happened, Orbel Faubus, governor of Arkansas, supported the white segregationist. Units of the National Guard have been and are now being mobilized with the mission to maintain or restore the peace and good order of this community. And Eisenhower, who believed that, as he would have thought of it, race relations should not be legislated or dealt with politically, he saw this as social, he initially did nothing. I personally believe if you try to go too far, too fast in laws in this delicate field that uh, has involved the emotions of so many millions of Americans, you're making a mistake. And I have to say, what eerie, eerie resonance in terms of today that we're actually back to having a Klan rally in Charlottesville and the president, President Trump, not condemning it, just letting that go. Well, I think it was just downright un-American. I mean, yeah, I'm guessing founding patriotic or something like that, but I always thought that all men were created equal. Then, at this point, Armstrong said, the way the government's treating my people, the government can go to hell. And I'm not going to go to Moscow for the government. I refuse. Now, this went like wildfire all over the globe, all over the United States. I think it was W.E.B. Du Bois who said that it is the obligation of a artist to speak out against civil injustice. Sonny Rollins. In other words, it was, it was uh, Louis Armstrong's obligation to uh, speak out against uh, uh, discrimination because he had so much of a voice. And I took that to heart. I think that's true. Although I do not reprimand anybody that doesn't do that, any famous artist that doesn't, because that's okay. I'm not criticizing them. 
right thing now, you're going to have to do the right thing later in another life. I'll be 88 years old now, and I'm very fortunate that I lived in this life long enough to learn some of these things. So my next time around, wherever it is, whatever, that's not my business. I just know there is something else. So whatever it is, wherever I'm at, whatever form my soul comes back, I will have learned this. So I don't have to go through this again. This is the Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91. I'm Alana Bridgewater. This time, how jazz was used, rightly or wrongly, to advance human rights around the world by governments and by the people they governed. The American State Department jazz tours continued. One of the ironies of exporting human rights is that the East, represented by the Soviets, and the West, by the Americans, is that they could never agree on what human rights even meant. In the East, economic rights were front and center. In the West, it was political and eventually civil rights. Caught in the middle, the jazz ambassadors, sent on a Cold War mission. People were talking about the Cold War. In the press announcement, they call it, this is the cool war. Several things stand out about Brubeck's trip to Poland. There's a hell of a story behind this, but I feel it's more my father's story than, than mine personally. Darius Brubeck is one of Dave Brubeck's sons. He lives in East Sussex in England. But I was only 10 years old, so uh, I wasn't very politically sophisticated, but I did understand the polarization between the West and uh, the Soviet sphere of influence, the Communist bloc, the Cold War, Iron Curtain, all of those terms were real to me. And... It was the first time I had been outside of the uh, USA. Brubeck was sent after they were picking him up from a commercial tour in Sweden, and even getting to Poland was very chaotic. It was, as a Californian, if you're talking about personal memories, um, it was really my first experience of what winter really was. You know, Europe was damn cold. He wanted to bring his wife, Ayula Brubeck, his oftentimes collaborator as a librettist and lyricist, and his two older children, Darius and Michael Brubeck. And the State Department did not want the family to go, so there was real tension. The plan is to get the Brubecks into the Eastern Bloc through Berlin. The attention of an anxious world is focused on East and West Germany and Berlin. As the communist German regime moves to close their border against further flights. And this was really hazardous. The um, East Germans would have loved to have given us permission. It wasn't sort of a hostility thing. The problem was that the U.S. did not recognize East Germany, therefore couldn't protect U.S. citizens in, in transit there. 
So they arrived in Berlin with no papers, no visas to go into East Berlin, no visas to go into Poland. So from the beginning, I mean, this is an era where some of the stories of spies and people being suspected of being a spy and disappearing into East German prisons were, you know, this was a, this was a real concern. This was the height of those kind of tensions. East German troops swooped down on the border between Red Berlin and the free city in the pre-dawn hours. I hadn't seen so many armed police and soldiers on train platforms and just practically every street corner. So, you know, as a cold 10-year-old, so that was a scary moment. So Brubeck was really very nervous and he was, you know, people wanted to smuggle him in the trunk of a car. And he said, I'm not going in the trunk of a car, I will go in the back seat. So Brubeck went through himself to try to get the visas for everybody else and goes in and is met, sits for an hour in an East German police station having no idea what's going on. When somebody finally approached him and said, are you Mr. Kulu? And they had a article from Poland on cool jazz, and it's Rubeck's nickname of Mr. Cool, Mr. Cool Jazz. And so from that moment, it was great. They had the visas, everything was all right, but it was kind of a harrowing start for them. Once we got to Poland, like all of the other places we went, I can remember what a big deal it was. Well, first of all, Dave Brubeck. He, you know, Dave Brubeck was really the icon of modern jazz at that time. They were familiar with his music. They knew what he looked like. That is Conover speaking with the Voice of America Jazz Hour. They were greeted very, very warmly by people of Poland, and people were just utterly fascinated with the children and with the family. Then when they found out that Dave Brubeck, this uh, great Western artist, had brought two of his children along, they, they were just delighted. They were, they were, that thrilled them because that signaled trust, if you think about it. In that era, where there's a presumption of hostility, even if you're coming for cultural exchange. Dave just immediately overcame that by bringing me and my brother Mike and, of course, our, our mother. And it just showed, okay, uh, we're here. He'd like his kids to see something else and, and you know, bring us along and, and that he wasn't afraid or in any way hostile or paranoid about being in a communist country. Brubeck was also, as were many of the musicians, you know, just very, very respectful of Polish culture. Uh, the Americans, by the way, didn't like this. I suppose they imagined kind of paranoid scenarios about how the, the wife and kids could be leveraged, or, you know, forced Dave to make statements he didn't want to or something like that. Nothing of the kind happened. Nothing close. The Brubeck Quartet did 12 shows in Poland, and when they were in Chechen, near the German border, Darius Brubeck watched from behind the stage curtain. My brother and I were backstage watching the Dave Brubeck Quartet playing their first concert in Poland, and the uh, road manager come translator, he literally pushed 
Mike and I on stage, and I had enough sense of occasion to realize you don't don't just turn around and run away. Make it look like you're calm and that it's not all a mistake. So the the, the next place to go once you're you're on stage is I just went to uh, my father and asked him what to do. He realized what was happening too. He said, oh, we'll play Take the A Train. There's a couple of layers to this. Take the A Train, as, as you may already know, was the theme song of Willis Conover's Voice of America jazz broadcast. So he knew, okay, that's going to go over. They, they all know that. And the other layer of it is even for a 10-year-old, it's not the hardest tune in the world. You know, you can sort of get away with that. Um, and he started the intro. And then I just started playing because, you know, I was nervous and I was sitting, you know, way up in the high register. I didn't know what to do next. And he looked at me and said, play the melody, stupid. You know, so, so I did. And the thing you know, went over tremendously well with the audience, and there was a press conference immediately afterwards, and a German reporter asked me, uh, what did your father say when you went on stage? And I undiplomatically told him exactly what my father said, which was, play the melody, stupid. And then the next day, the headline in the German-language newspaper was, Spiel die Melody, Dummkopf. That, that's become kind of a family saying ever since. He also wrote a song as a thank you to the Polish people. And he did a sort of a Chopin-esque introduction to the song. To honor the tradition of Chopin and Polish music. And Brubeck, well, like many of the musicians, was versed in classical music as well as jazz and just had a deep appreciation of the musical culture of Poland. So this is a deep meeting of musical exchange. Brubeck also was deeply aware of the repression in Poland at that time as a more or less a political satellite of the Soviet Union, very moved by the dilapidation of Poland, certainly not springing back after the devastating war. 
I think he wanted to get across the, uh, um, oh, there's so many levels of this. I'm, you know, I think, first of all, he wanted to show the, the great human potential and the kind of freedom that, that people enjoy in democracies. And he also wanted to show that American, and this was very much a State Department agenda, to show American culture as unique, not just as a second-rate form of European culture, but as uh, jazz is an American music, which is played all over the world, but originally American. Brubeck was one of the musicians who, like Willis Conover, would have argued that jazz is structurally identical or structurally similar to American democracy because one follows a certain set of rules. So you agree on rhythms, you agree on harmonies, so there is a structure, but within that you can be an individual. This truly was offering jazz and the lessons that it implies about cooperation, freedom, individuality. He was aware that this was soft power. He was offering an alternative to the way Soviet domination was trying to push society into greater and greater conformity, subordination to the party. You can express freedom, you can improvise, you can do your own thing. Among those who'd seen the Brubeck Quartet on the State Department tour was a 16-year-old Polish trumpet player named Tomasz Stanko. He had listened to Willis Conover on the radio. Then he saw Dave Brubeck, his first live jazz show, and he knew what he wanted to do. So if you listen to the music of uh, Tomasz Stanko, all the Polish jazz players of this period, they have a strong element of free music. Jacques Kuba Seguin is a Polish-Canadian jazz trumpeter in Montreal. They were very compelled to the music of, uh, of uh, Ornette Coleman because when you see, it's free music, free of rhythm, free of convention, but also very melodic. The driving force is the melody, which is also where you can find also in the classical music, if you listen to the music of Chopin. Artistic convention or expression had to be filtered. You couldn't say what you wanted exactly. Uh, the regime was very strict about you know, what could be done and what could be not done. I'm listening to the sound of Stanko. Stanko plays two notes. I know exactly that it's Tomasz Stanko. I know that in Poland they would smuggle uh, records. In Poland, there was always strong music programs. And because of that, strong musicians came out of it and they were able to find work all around Europe. So when they would come back to Poland, they would bring records that they couldn't find inside Poland. Poland has this huge culture of cabaret. So they would go, you know, in clubs and 
they would influence each other. One would influence, oh, look what I discovered on this record. They would live, uh, transcribe things from the records, come back the next day and play at the club. You know, the thing other guys would listen and figure out what you're doing, and it would creep into the culture, you know. Can you imagine how much you have to love this music, you know, to hide those records, you know, in your suitcase? Still up to today, the jazz clubs are underneath the ground. So you have an old marketplace that dates from, in, for instance, in Krakow, which dates from the, maybe the 12th century or something like that. And uh, you have those old caves that were converted into clubs. And uh, those clubs were, were places where you actually could express yourself. There's also a club in uh, Krakow called, called Pivnica pod Baranami, which means the, 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 the basement underneath the, the sheeps. Louis Armstrong and Dave were part of the Jazz Ambassadors program, so-called, um, by the U.S. State Department. But Louis... Uh, pointed out the uh, absurdity of America making all of its claims about democracy when there was still uh, segregation and Jim Crow laws in the states. And Dave and Iola, my mother, uh, wrote a musical around that theme. From reports on musical as beat, it was clear to the local press he quelled the riots of our priests, restored the place to comparative peace. That's what we call cultural exchange. That's what we call cultural exchange. The Real Ambassadors was a musical, a political satire set in a fictional African town. When this blue, the riots were routed, people danced and cheered and shouted, the headlines battered, the hours is they dropped the stones and they rhymed with this. That's what we call cultural exchange. Dave Brubeck and Iola Brubeck wrote the play soon after the Central High School riot in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957. It was this riot that caused Louis Armstrong, who had never been politically outspoken, to say that his government could go to hell. Yeah, I remember when Diz was in Greece, back in 57. He did such a good job, we started sending jazz all over the world. Louis Armstrong was the lead of the real ambassadors. The State Department has discovered jazz. It reaches folks like nothing ever has. Like when they feel that jazzy rhythm, they know we're really with them. That's what we call cultural exchange. No commodity is quite so strange as this thing called cultural exchange. Say that our prestige needs a tonic, export the philharmonic, that's what we call cultural exchange. That's what we call cultural exchange. 
We put Oklahoma in Japan South Pacific we gave to Iran And when our neighbors call us vermin We sent out Woody Herman That's what we call cultural exchange Hirschwin gave the Moscovites a thrill Einstein was the darling of Brazil And just to stop internal mayhem We dispatched Martha Graham That's what we call cultural exchange That's what we call cultural exchange So the, you know, the the real dissonance, the contradiction between proclaiming democracy uh, abroad and treating minorities as second-class citizens at home was the prevailing theme. And that is the heart of the contradiction that really defines these early tours. And that was considered too risky for Broadway at the time, but it was produced at the Monterey Jazz Festival. And interestingly, in recent years, it's lain dormant since like 1963 or so. It's been having revivals here and there because I think in the Trump era there's a new interest in soft power and in the potential that America has to build bridges, explain itself, recover trust, all of these things that have been missing for a long time post 9-11. And if the world goes wacky, we'll get John to send out Jackie. You mean Jackie Robinson? No, man, I mean the first lady. That's what we call cultural exchange. Oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. When I very first started working on this project, one of the first people I spoke with was Al Gray, who had toured with Dizzy Gillespie. And I asked him some version of, did you ever feel used by the State Department? And he just shot back so quickly and passionately, absolutely not. He said, we saw this as it's about time they recognized merit. It's about time they recognized good music. And this was our chance to be recognized as musicians by a country that had denied the importance of our music, but also that the tours were then a platform for civil rights. You know, I view this period in the 50s and 60s, it's no accident that some of the most amazing achievements of the art form that everybody celebrates happened then. There was an you know, incredible sort of motivation to explore and develop, you know, at the same time as the world is burning down around you. But many of the black American musicians 
would have modified the idea that jazz is equal to freedom and identical to the American political system because they saw all too well the flaws and exclusions of Jim Crow segregation. So for them, democracy, freedom were very much still a project, still something in the works, and the outcome was by no means determined. We're in this moment right now, we've got, you know, where I, I see in the students now that there's a movement, on, ever since the Black Lives Movement took off, this feeling that this investment, oh, I see what activism on the ground means. And um, we're in a particularly, you know, nasty time period now in which, you know, a blatant racist is the President of the United States who is also treasonous and would defend the Russia over, you know, the U.S. intelligence agencies. And it's a really very surreal kind of time. And I think all these themes that were explored in jazz then are newly resonant to a younger generation of people. People are interested in Kendrick Lamar, you know. I remember you was conflicted, misusing your influence. Sometimes I did the same. In the 21st century, there is music that's influencing people around the world to think about their own rights, their own promise of freedom, and it's hip hop. If your walls can talk, they tell you it's too late. Your destiny accepted your fate. Your accessories and stash them on the yard. Take the recipe, the Bible, and God. Wall telling you that commissary is low. Race wars happening, no calling CO. No calling your mother to save you. Homies to say you're reputable, not acceptable. Your behavior sent me to board like a killer that turns. They hear it from hip hop artists like Kendrick Lamar, the John Coltrane of hip hop, according to Billboard magazine. Walls can talk. Kendrick Lamar watched his album, To Pimp a Butterfly, take 11 Grammy nominations in 2015. On that album, he snuck in a secret weapon. Tenor saxophonist Kamasi Washington the secret weapon in hip-hop is the African-American music tradition. The secret weapon is jazz. What's interesting to me is the way in which a certain kind of socially conscious hip-hop 
is beginning to include more sounds that sound like they're from jazz and particularly avant-garde jazz in a way they didn't before. So that, you know, that fascinates me. Both jazz artists and popular artists are trying to refer to those signs and symbols that we know from the history of this music as a means of creating a feeling and an inspiration um, appropriate to this moment. In the broadest sense, it's all about human dignity and freedom and challenging oppression. I think the making of art from these experiences creates an emotion around this. It's reproducible. People can hear it and feel it in themselves and use it however they're going to do in ins inspiring their own actions in the world. listening to the journey to jazz and human rights on Jazz FM 91 produced by Tom Jokinen and generously supported by the Maytree Foundation I'm Alana Bridgewater thank you for listening Yeah, that's that's America. That's America. Yeah. You, oh, yeah. That's national anthem. Freedom. That's jazz. Jazz is that.